Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're talking Beyond Legacy Code today with David Bernstein. It's going to be a, f- a really great show, I can already tell. And uh, so, how are you, Mr. Campbell? I'm doing, you know, happy to be back in the studio doing the thing. Still little things to finish in my office, right? Yeah, like yeah. that whole, are you done? What mm. is done exactly? It's never done. It's, it's just abandoned. Really done yeah yeah it's just like i get tired of working on it i guess i I moved in i do like being in my office i like having my swing arm mic i'm still using the chaotica eyeball because i think it sounds good yeah 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 yeah. good that's where i am studio's empty it's quiet there's no sirens right now that's a good sign so this too shall pass i guess we'll just uh get right to better know a framework awesome All right, dude, what are we doing today? Well, we were talking legacy code and beyond legacy code. I figured I would go back in time a little bit to archive.org. There's an article that MSDN Magazine posted. And the whole idea is that this is an old problem, but, you know, maybe you don't know about it. There's there's a few different timers in .NET, in the yes. .NET framework. It turns out system threading timer isn't thread safe, which is weird because it's in the threading model, you know, in the threading namespace. You mean the place where threading ought to be safe? It ought to be safe in the threading system, <laughs> threading namespace, but it's not. There you go. So it, it, the, 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 so the too long don't read version is use system.timers.timer right. on a server or any system where, you know, you want this timer to work on the thread you're on. And if you go to 1424.pwop.me, that'll take you to this great article at archive.org, which was originally an MSDM magazine talking about all of these things. February 2004. Yeah. 2004. 2004. It's a long time ago, man. Yeah. So it's still the same, though. System.timers.timer is the one you want to use. Just use it. Just use it. You'll be fine. It's no big deal. All right, man. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1356, the one we did back in October 2016 with Dustin Metzgar. We were talking about how Microsoft supports aging software. All right. 
important conversation, right? It was, and it just, I thought it was a real insightful moment for folks to realize, hey, the guys who build a product for Microsoft may not be the ones supporting it. There's mm. teams dedicated to that particular challenge. Right. And, you know, Dustin leads a group of those guys. And Michael Malecki said, uh, one question that I really wished was asked is when would you consider moving development and support to a completely different team? Why would the team responsible for Entity Framework or something else close to the database not support Link to SQL? To some extent, it looks like you're practicing outsourcing end-of-life maintenance to a lower-cost team, whether it be vendors or a different country and so forth. But that's not what's going on here, because you guys are all still Microsoft employees. But why put the responsibility for so many products onto one team? Right. And Dustin actually responded uh, to Michael there. And it's a long answer, but let me give you the short version of it. But essentially, he said, you're right. This is a very important question. There is no policy on when to move a given product to another team, but there are a variety of reasons why these things happen, and he is speculating to some degree. And and part of that is just sort of uh, the fact that different teams work in different ways, and the often by the time features are seen by the public and they actually get shipped, mm. teams have already moved on to other things, right. right? And developers get promoted in their careers. They don't they typically will only stay with a given product if they're, you know, moving fast in their careers for one ship cycle. Mm. And then they do move on. And so Microsoft makes a conscious effort to make sure that different people are trained on uh, on given libraries so that they do get maintained and folks can move on. That's why and documentation s- is really important, kids. Absolutely. And and he and Dustin goes on to say that's why we have teams that specialize in maintenance because their real expertise more than anything is they know how to deal with new operating systems coming in and where things might break and what that testing looks like. So they can work across many different products to deal with those sorts of things and also know how to put it up in knowledge bases, package in in patches so that they can keep things running. Like that's the bigger skill than any given product per se that's in maintenance. Yeah. So uh, my thanks to Dustin for an awesome answer. And Michael is just really grateful to you to, to put out that question about why work this way. Because I think it's very interesting to think about the long life of software, especially from a commercial perspective. Yep. So, Michael, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of the social media. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there or we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We have a backlog of legacy tweets we refer to regularly. <laughs> do they need much maintenance? I don't think they do. Mm, a little bit. Hey, it's a new operating system. We've got to upgrade that tweet. Yeah, they need to be weeded out every once in a while. <laughs> All right, let's introduce our guest, David Bernstein. He's the author of the book, Beyond Legacy Code, Nine Practices to Extend the Life and Value of Your Software. It's an insider's view of the software industry drawn from his decades of hands-on experience as a software developer, trainer, and consultant to some of the biggest players in the business. David's continuing passion for software design and construction has led him to train more than 8,000 professional developers since 1990 at hundreds of companies around the world, including IBM, Microsoft, and Yahoo. His consulting firm, To Be Agile, Com, helps developers adopt extreme programming practices such as test-driven development, continuous integration, and refactoring. Welcome, David. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's our pleasure. We, we're excited to have you uh, with all this experience and great stuff. I, I guess we should just start by 
trying to agree on what legacy code means. Cool. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> it's a great idea. Um, so I can tell you what it means to me. I'm also very curious what it means to you. Uh, and I've heard lots of people define legacy code in different ways. Um, right. One of the ways that we kind of understand legacy code is what Michael Feather said, which is uh, code without tests, without automated tests. Because <laughs> he's a very big believer in, you know, automated tests give us a great deal of confidence right. that our code is working as we expect it. Yeah, I think that confidence line is really powerful, right? Are you confident? Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's exactly what I was going to say, which is, for me... Legacy code is simply code that we no longer have confidence in. Interesting. And that's actually a dangerous place to be because when we are scared to touch something, we won't do it. Yeah. No, the fear of regret will overwhelm every time. Yeah. And it's a real fear, as we all know, because, you know, when you have that experience of, you know, fixing one bug and 50 other bugs sprout up and, you know, what you thought was going to take an hour takes, you're still in it in a week, then you you start to be very careful about the changes you make in systems. Well, and and the mess just keeps getting larger too, right? Like this is the Hydra effect. You lopped off a head, three more grew back. You lopped off another head, three more grew back. You are losing here. Yes. Yes. And we had Michael yeah. on the show back in 2008 that's talking right. about legacy code. I mean, that's a long time ago. But, of course, there's, there's yeah. legacy code that's decades old. Yes. Yes. A lot of people believe that a lot of code, as soon as you write it, it becomes legacy code. Yeah. I, I think that's a little too aggressive. Uh, I've often gone with the definition of if you can't – if you're not willing to build it anymore or don't know how to build it anymore, <laughs> it's legacy. Like it. It's usually the don't know <laughs> I how. I like that a lot. It's more like the fear. Yes. You know, oh, don't, we never even touched that. That's, yeah. Yeah, yes. the fear. Because if you build it and write over the other one that used to run, now you can't go back. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. like, you have committed the one-way trip. You tried to build the app again. Yeah. So why, why do you guys think that there is so much legacy code out there in our industry? Because maintenance isn't as sexy as new. Also, I think, I mean, look at the sort of ultimate canon of, of legacy code, COBOL. <laughs> How many COBOL programmers do you know that aren't employed? Yeah. You know? yeah None. Right. Yeah, if these sort of, <laughs> and you know, probably the next wave would be VB, right? There's a lot of VB4, right. VB5, VB6 apps, maybe even earlier than that out there that are, are still used today. Listen, I came up the chain of VB all the way from 1.0. And if I had to pull up a VB6 application right now, man, it would, take it would take a couple of scotches to get me uh where i could remember (laughs) or maybe not remember but uh, you know to get back into oh that's how we did it but you know the other thing would be building a working build environment in vb do you think you could get the control suites together again because you took some dependencies in that project on some control suites and those companies are gone yeah gone 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 yeah like you you could not build the project anymore that's right Right? There's that's, no that's such thing as a Sheridan VB control repository anymore. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. You know, I, one of the consulting gigs I had last year was working with a company where all of the COBOL developers are trying to retire. Mm-hmm. And, and they signed on extended work contracts, but their primary mission is to get the last of their code base handed off to a new generation of developers working in .NET, which is why I was there. Uh, to retire this stuff and to turn off that mainframe. Like they wanted to get off of that and they're desperate. Like they want to retire. They have more work. Like this is not a problem. They want to stop working and they can't because there's nobody to replace them. They have to actually end this system. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I heard that the, the demand for COBOL programmers is pretty high. Mm-hmm. It's not the field that I work in, but <laughs> if you want a good paying job, that probably will last a while. Well, Maybe you know, and, and arguably, you should have gotten your experience in the COBOL heyday. I mean, the, somebody who's yeah, learning right. COBOL right now has so much to learn because they don't even understand the architecture of the machines, how to even log into them. I mean, yeah. Where's my text yeah, editor? Yeah. You're what? <laughs> it's my yes. IDE. Huh? Yeah. There's just so much stuff that gets forgotten when uh, when technology goes away. That said, you know, there's right now, I would think that there's still a lot of ASP.NET web forms apps out there that are have yet to be rewritten as MVC, Web API, Node.js, whatever. Pick your current poison. But, uh, you know, some of those things can move over to Web API if you decide you want to just take your data layer and call it from behind a Web API. But usually it means that, oh, we're going to build the whole system up from scratch because we've learned a few things about how the data works. And do you, do you see that happening, that that code gets replaced with new versions more often than uh, legacy code is brought forward? you know, piece by piece? Uh, you know, it kind of just depends. Um, and I I've actually have yet to work with a COBOL team. So that's, that's <laughs> the aspect of okay. it. I don't know. <clears throat> but many of the modern developers that I work with are oftentimes faced with a question of, you know, buy or, or you know, rebuild something or refactor something. Sure. Right. And uh, actually, you know, I, I always was on the fence about that, but having lived through this experience so many times, and I'm, I'm interested to know what you guys think too, mm. is I've seen a lot of times when teams will decide, okay, we just got to scrap this and we just got to start over again. If they're not really conscious about doing something very different than they did before, five years later, they end up in exactly the same place, Absolutely. except now it's twice as bad right? because they have two <laughs> code bases. They have their original code base that their users are still on. They have the new code base, which is not nearly as good, uh, and they're kind of caught in a bind. Yes. Well, yeah. one of the problems around that is it was also probably the first app they've built on that new platform that they wanted to use. So, you know, like the clutch in your the clutch in your first car, you you burn the snot out of it, right? Like it's it's nothing to be proud of. Yes. Yes. I'm, um, I am refactoring those seems like it could be a better situation, at least more cost effective. In many ways. And, you know, sometimes people think of the refactoring word as as scary as the legacy code word. But I think refactoring, I've become much more friendly to refactoring lately. I find that it's not a boring, horrible task like I thought it would be. And in Hmm. fact, when I spend a lot of time refactoring other people's code, I notice that I don't make those same mistakes myself. Interesting. So, so it's kind of a learning process. Yeah. 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 As well as starting to really understand the domain. Like if you're, if you're getting your head around <laughs> an existing piece of software, being able to make a modification to it in some ways to make it better, trying to refactor it, it gives you some more confidence in what that software actually does. Yes, absolutely. Have you ever seen a, a, a sort of incremental approach to refactoring where, okay, in, in, to keep with this whole, Web API, web forms thing, MVC thing. We're going to take pieces of it and move it to this other system and, you know, just sort of reroute, uh, calls to, from our current system to the new system. And so piece by piece, point by point, we gradually migrate over 
rather than having, you know, just one great big, I mean, it's a very agile way to do it, isn't it? Yes. Is, is that the way that you, yes. you, is that the way to do it? Yeah, I think so. Um, in most cases, because we, we do need to keep the system live if we're going to, you know, update it. So we don't want to like say, oh, guys, we're going out of business for the next six months because we got to refactor our code. So um, there are patterns that will help us with this. One of my very favorite patterns is uh, one from Martin Fowler called system strangling. Are you familiar with that one? No, no, no. That's a great oh, term, yeah, though. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, essentially what you do is you create a facade up front. So, so you have this big blob you know, horrible system, this big ball of mud <laughs> and you create a front end for it, uh, a, a new entry point. That's the clean interface that you want, a facade essentially. And then you start to refactor the pieces internally piece by piece. And as you get a new piece in, you just replace it. And uh, what happens is all your new clients are starting to now use your new interface. And it's right. only your legacy clients that are using your old interface. And piece by piece, we're, we're moving them over into the new interface. And then once the whole system is done, we can say to our old clients, oh, now call the new, now call the new interface, and we can completely retile the old one. Yeah. Interesting. That's yeah, kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, there's a bit more to it than that, of course. I really like that because you don't create a dead drop migration. It's not like one day you must move to the new bits. You're bit by bit building the new features and building a new version. And folks can move over willingly rather than being forced to on a particular day. And it gets even more complicated if you have a new database as well as a new system, doesn't it? I mean, now you're migrating uh, two databases that have to kind of act as the same database. I can't even imagine how you'd sort of piecemeal move everything to, from one system to the other. Have you done that? Uh, I have witnessed that, yes. And it is the worst, most horrible transformation that I've ever encountered. Absolutely. In terms of making the, you know, finding a path to moving the code to a better place. Because everything is so intertwined. When you have the data and the code itself intertwined, oh. uh, people start to manipulate the databases without going through APIs. And that's when everything can get out of sync when you make the smallest change. Oh yeah. 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 If you don't know the paths to your data, you're, you're going to get yourself into serious trouble. Yeah. And why, you yes. know, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem like a good use of time to have to duplicate the interfaces on one database for another one, just in the interim, just so we can get this thing moving again. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. That's a hard one. Yeah. Should we just dive into these nine practices? Sure, if you like. Yeah. So, you, are we talking about you, you're you new to the project, you've never built it before, like starting from scratch kind of thing, legacy project? Um, the nine practices are the highest value practices I found in my career as mm -hmm. a developer from the Agile space. So, they're they're really mostly from extreme programming. Right. Um. And, you know, Scrum and Agile was pretty much invented. Well, I think Scrum, the people who created Scrum said it was about helping you implement XP more seamlessly. Right. And uh, whenever I talk to any of the people who are doing Scrum, I say, so how are you doing with the extreme programming stuff? And they go, what's that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, it's kind of weird that, you know, Scrum was, uh, this is according to Ken Schwaber and Mike Beetle. You can read it on, on the description of their book. Um, software development using Scrum, and it says it says that that it was designed for working with XP. But you know, 
I think those are where the real where the real value is in software development is the, these technical practices. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to write a book that really explained it to the agile community, to managers who may not be so technical, and also to developers. Okay. All right. Let's dive in. Let's just list them off, and then we'll get into them one by one. All right. Excellent. So practice one is say what, why, and for whom before how. Good. Practice two is build in small batches. Yeah. Practice three is integrate continuously. Mm -hmm. Practice four, collaborate. Practice five, create clean code. And clean is an acronym for five key code qualities that really improve the maintainability of software. Practice six is write the test first. Practice seven is specify behaviors with tests. Mm -hmm. Practice eight is implement the design last. And then practice nine is refactor legacy code. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Should we start at the top with the turning how into what? Or <laughs> not saying how at all? Yes. So w- one of the things in Agile is to replace, you know, requirements with stories that express how and, and, and not, that don't express how, but really express who is it for and what do you want and why do you want it? And um as long as we have that conversation, because a lot of times product owners write a story, but then they'll tell the developers how to do something, like how to implement it. And we developers will very often take their suggestion and just do it that way, even right. though we know better ways to implement things. We don't really want to implement a lot of features procedurally by default, because if we take advantage of object-oriented programming, functional programming, some of these ideas, we can build software that's more maintainable and still get the job done. So I, as a developer, I would prefer to create behavior through the interaction of my objects rather than through writing straight logic. Yes. Nice. However, when I look at code, and I've gotten a chance to, you know, working with 8,000 developers and many, many teams, I've gotten a chance to look at lots and lots of code out there in industry. And the vast majority of object-oriented code that I see out there is procedural with just a class statement wrapped around it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we yeah. were fighting that in the VB. You talk about VB days. That's right. I mean, in the 90s, yes. we were fighting that. So, you've yeah, you've now declared an object. You're just not doing anything object-y. People bring their, <laughs> right. people bring their comfortable <laughs> right. habits forward into new mm-hmm. territory. And the challenge is, is that we get the job done, we make it work, but at the expense of maintainability. Right. It's yeah. harder to change code that way. And because of that, that's why I think a lot of code becomes legacy code pretty quickly. I think it's hard a hard sell, isn't it? You know, to say we should be thinking about these things up front before we write any code. And, you know, often developers are gung-ho to get started, of course. And, uh, and you know, here comes somebody that says, no, you know, you, you, you have to think about these things first. And uh, I imagine you get a lot of that pushback. Personally, I like to think about things as I go with my hands, because as we're, if we're doing design before we actually code, we're talking about what if, and you know, who knows? And it's anybody's guess. But as soon as we start to make it tangible and just even, even if we're doing it wrong, in the light of the new specifications, mm. at least we have something that we can talk about and work from. And what I find is this idea of refactoring code, changing the design without changing the behavior. Mm. Is, is actually very straightforward. Yeah, yeah. There's this amazing book, and I think it's a book that every one of us developers should should read and love. It's by Martin Fowler. It's called Refactoring. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the Bible. It really is. And the thing, and he's a great writer too. He's oh, very sure. readable. Uh, the thing that I was really struck by in his book was that most of the refactorings are very straightforward. Now, he lists them in excruciating details because, you know, he wants you to sort of understand the steps. But once you understand them, then you can go run through them. I can run through many of the refactorings in my head very quickly and understand how to transform my design from one approach to another approach when I get new information. Yeah. And I find that doing that, being willing to change my mind as a developer, is one of the great characteristics, I think, of developers. The, the top developers I know are, are, are willing to change their minds. Indeed. Well, be, be persuaded one way or the other. You know, it, it, it occurs to me, and you said this earlier in the conversation, where it's like, we should just rewrite this. That's a way to get left alone for six months. <laughs> yeah, good point. You know, like just working through, I'm thinking, you know, folks resist working through that because the reason I go for how is just I want to write code. Like, that's why I want how. Just like, let's get to, uh, don't make me understand. Let me write code. Right. And one of the ways I yes. get to write code is I go, you know, if we redid this in Ruby, we'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. And now you leave <laughs> me alone for six months while I redo our work in Ruby. Right. So, I mean, I think it's very challenging for certain personalities, certain projects, just to sort of get to this idea of this piece of software has a purpose. This does something useful. You know, what does it do? Yeah. Yes. But we still don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. We can think with our hands and we can right. actually play with the code because like you said, I mean, that's my feeling as well. And many of my colleagues, we want to just dive into code, but I don't want to dive into implementation without really understanding what, what I need to do, you mm. know, at least what the interface is. So I like to take that step back first and say, well, at least what is my, how am I going to call this? What are my you know, what, what is the signature that I'm going to be using and, and um, what is it going to be doing? What result that I can measure is it going to create? Yeah. It occurs to me that is, you, you want to look at the code and you really should just be running the app. Mm. Mm. That, well, we want that to, answers what better than how. We want to draw lots of diagrams on the whiteboard and come up with contingencies for every particular scenario before we even write, you know, anything. Yeah, and I... I find that 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 I comes from the best intentions, but it's not always the most productive use of our time. I would rather than anticipate what could go on, go wrong, which again is something that's anyone's guess. I rather have practices that support me in accommodating change in the future. Right, right. Yeah, and we talk about this all the time. Anytime we talk about any kind of agile methodologies, or or just basically called software development, now we come across the whole idea that. We can't be afraid to fail. I mean, failure is what, and by failure, I mean, write something that isn't going to, you know, be perfect or isn't going to be applicable in all situations, because that's the whole idea. You just write something and expect it to change. Yes. I um I have this experience of being an author writing prose now, because I just, you know, as, as we know, published a book. And what I find is there's a lot of parallels between writing prose and writing code. One of the things that they tell you when you're writing prose, and I'm sure you probably heard this from, you know, your 10th grade composition class or whatever, is don't edit yourself while you're writing. You know, that's right. a recipe for writer's block. We right. want to first just get it out and then we'll go back and clean it up and, yeah. you know, all that. Because it's actually a different part of our brains that you that we use to generate versus to edit. Hmm. And I think the same thing is true in, in coding. 
You know, I like to get something to work first. I like to make it pass all my tests so I know it works. And then I'll refactor it and clean it up. And I find it's far more efficient to do that. Yeah, it is literally two different mindsets, right? It's sort of a head up versus head down thing. Writing code and writing text, for that matter, is a head down thing. Editing yes. code and, and editing text is a head up thing. It's like, where are we going? What was the point of this? Like, you, you have to carry around what with you when you're editing. When, but yes. when you're creating it, you're head down. It's, it's how. Yes. Yes. I agree. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. You got it, man. It's time to refactor a legacy joke for legacy developers so I can maybe get a few legacy laughs. <laughs> or, uh, or there was no laughs in the past. Or was one there? at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate it. Chucked him under the bus just like that. Oh, you're making a cold ball joke, aren't you? Uh, uh, are you doing be. a procedural joke? Is that what this no, is? No, no, no. Very unprocedural. Very object-oriented. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Steve McAllister. Congratulations, Steve. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. And, you know, I went to grammar school. Yeah, thank you. David, I went to grammar school with uh, a Steve McAllister, but I don't think he's a programmer. And there I, you go. I don't think that's him. But if it is, what a coinky dink! <laughs> and Steve just won the D Experience subscription from Developer Express, a big pile of awesome from them, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. All right, David, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, <laughs> that's actually a very germane question for me because uh, I will be spending about $5,000. Um, so I'm... An, I'm an Apple fanboy, actually. So yeah. I would, <laughs> I really want to get a new MacBook Pro and right. uh, probably the new iPad once it comes out. And that's about five grand. Easy. Well, you can blow more than that on a MacBook Pro if you just try hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, they will yes. take your money. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, mine is seven years old. I've never owned a computer for seven years. My God. Wow, that's no, a long crap. time. That is a long time. I know. It's just, it keeps working. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah, they're great machines. Now you're just talking crazy talk. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> they are great oh. machines. Fully, are. fully loaded Mac Pro, uh, Pro 15 inch, yeah, 3,500 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I want the uh, smaller one, the 13 inch, because oh, I, I want portability and they have a one terabyte uh, solid state drive in it. That that's really was what I needed. Oh, so that, a small that, computer with a terabyte drive. Yeah. Yeah, that will <laughs> blow up your cost. Those terabyte drives are not that cheap. 
So, but that's fine. You know. Well, thanks guys for it. I, um, you can mail me the check anytime. <laughs> 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 the guests never win; only the listeners. Right. Uh, I, I feel. I pretty much feel like a winner, though. Oh, that's so nice. Shall we talk about some of the other practices? Yep, let's yeah, get love into to. them. We only got to one in the first half of the show. We better hurry. Right. Oh, my God. We, okay, eight practices. I'll do, I'll do it quick. So, yeah. the build in small batches. And, you know, the, there's really two main reasons that I think building in small batches is useful. Rather than trying to code to a release, coding to a feature, a behavior. Right. Um, one is that it's more opportunity for feedback if we have small batches. Small, you know, small problems, as we all know in, in life in general, are mm. easier to deal with. They're easier to verify. They're, they're easier to understand. So, smaller is better. But the small also means that if, if we take a task from start to finish as quickly as possible, we don't have a lot of task switching going on there, and that eats up a lot of time and energy. Yeah. And we can limit the scope of the task to a shorter period of time rather than a release happening over several months. The shorter amount of time we spend, the less process overhead that we need. Right. And the easier it is to backtrack out of it if it, if something goes wrong. Like uh, yes. You say in your book, tell smaller lies. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> well, we can't help but lie to ourselves. I mean, if we didn't because reality is so unpredictable, we probably right, not right. get out of bed in the morning. It's true. So the trick is to make sure that the lies that we're telling ourselves is a empowering and small. So if we get it wrong, it's not going to be catastrophic. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Okay. So practice three. Integrate continuously. Indeed. And um, this is one of the things that I find really helps with the first two, which is the ability to get feedback from the system. Yeah. People talk about agile and feedback a lot, mm-hmm. but the, area of feedback that I think is most valuable for us as developers is the build. Yeah. And if I have a really good build and I have good automated tests that verify the behaviors that I wrote are working as I expected, then I can catch bugs before they even become bugs. Mm-hmm. You know, I can catch them before anyone sees them, which is great. <laughs> That's what right. I want to do. So I'm a big believer in continuous integration. I think it's definitely the central concept of Agile. I'm always surprised when I see very few people, teams that call themselves Agile, who are like, we don't really do continuous integration. Right. Because I think it's most valuable. I think it's the best place to start. But yeah, and I was thinking that's you're already all, all the way down to three when we're talking about this. I mean, obviously at one, you may or may not have been buildable, but you got to get to a place of what do we want to change so that we can we can get to that. Then you got to figure out, can you build anything? But often once you get it basically buildable, you don't, you stop working on the build process. You need to make it better. Yeah. All right. right. So, and, and in continuous integration is just like builds that work awesome. And it, you know, the thing is, it's yes. not difficult to set up. Everybody thinks it's this big, you know, oh, we're going to change everything. And how does that work? It's really no big deal, you know? It, it really isn't, but it does create an infrastructure for doing many of the other agile practices. Yeah, it creates a space right. where you can, you know, write the automated tests and have them run automatically. Yep. Uh, so that's all really, really helpful. All There's really no need for automated tests if you don't have an automated build. Yep. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> that's step one, yeah. Well, step three. All right, number four. So, number four, collaborate. Mm-hmm. And the thing, the real point that I want to make about that is that just like technical practices, collaboration really requires a skill set. It requires specific practices that help us. 
Um, and I talk about various techniques like um, mobbing and swarming and pair programming. Not to and, Woody uh, These are the pri- Yes. Oh, you know Woody. <laughs> oh, we know Woody. We love Woody. We've had Woody on the Woody's- show. Yeah. He's awesome. He's a dear he friend, and awesome. I'm going to see him next week, actually, at the Agile Open Northwest. He's the mob programming guy, for those who don't remember. Yeah. Yes. Back in the day. But it, it, it's interesting, at this point, you're now changing the way folks code together. Yes. You know, experimenting with different approaches to coding. Giving them opportunities to change. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, because this is the one of all the practices I, I really feel are very important. This is the one that I get the most resistance, both oh, yeah. from managers and from developers, is is pairing. Wow. Managers say they can't afford to lose half their resources. And <laughs> I say we are people, we're not resources. Right. <laughs> nice. And but and also that, you know, wouldn't you rather have half as many code but no but a tenth as many bugs? Yeah, that's it. The quality of the code goes up exponentially when there's more than one person writing it or looking at it while it's being written. Yeah, I totally would. I don't know if a lot of managers necessarily would because they don't really understand how how devastating bugs can be. Sure. Mm. Well, the, the, I guess, I mean, I appreciate your, your core statement of we're not resources, we're people. But the other thing is, is our metric lines of code? Because if it is, I can write a bot that'll spit a lot of code out. <laughs> you know, like that's exactly. not hard to do. Yes, yes. So it's not about how fast you type. And I think this is the big challenge is we think about productivity from the sort of manufacturing perspective, you know, Lucy with the pies going down the conveyor belt. But productivity (laughs) in complex systems like software is not really measurable directly. Because as you say, you can spit out more code and more bugs and things get worse. Yes, You, you are digging yourself a hole at that point. Yep. Yes, yes. One guy who was on our team, he was considered the top guy on our team. He was the most senior person. He could write code super fast. He was considered the very best of all of us. He had to leave. He had to move, actually. Huh. And after he left, we did some statistics on our productivity, on the, amount of, on the amount of work we were able to accomplish. And it turned out that his code was, he wrote a lot of code, but it was pretty buggy. And it turned out that the net result was we got more features done without him than with him it turned out he was our worst person not wow. our best person <laughs> wow that yeah funny yeah how you measure that statement is really interesting right i mean that's definitely part of the challenge so yeah that's really a, a, a hard question how do we measure productivity and um, I tend to stay away from that. I think we don't really need to. What we need to measure is our process, because mm-hmm. these are the areas that are, would give us the most benefit. If we can in- make our process better, then measuring individuals' productivity uh, pales in comparison, really. Yeah, no, I'd rather measure the productivity of the team. Do you know any developers that hire themselves out in pairs? Oh, interesting. Well, Ron and Chet do. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you know yeah. those guys? No. Um, so Ron Ron Jeffries is like one of the inventors of test driven development and extreme programming. Inventors, discoverers, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. So they they when they teach classes, they always teach it together, and um, they always because they want to model the behavior of interaction right. and have people see that, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty cool. That is really cool. That's yeah. a neat idea, and it's and it's honest so, too. Uh, yeah. 
Yes. So just in summary for collaboration, pairing is not taking turns at the computer. It's bringing two minds to bear on the same problem. Right. Yes. And when we do that, we can, like you say, less bugs, cleaner code, less code to do the same task. Yep. Yep. Usually. I, I've also looked at it as you, you get head up and head down at the same time, right? Whoever's yeah. typing on the keyboard is inherently head down and the person sitting beside them can be head up. Yes. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And the head up developer is usually thinking about the big picture. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's where you have that moment that says this library already exists or we don't need this many lines. You know, there's a different way to do this. Like those sudden jumps or more importantly, just recognizing when you're thrashing. Right. Before the whole day goes by. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. Number five, clean code, an acronym. And, and clean is my acronym for five key code qualities. I call them qualities, but they're quantitative. Okay. And these are things that we're probably familiar with, at least at some level. Um, C stands for cohesive means that it's about one thing, follows the single responsibility principle. Uh, L means loosely coupled. We're talking through abstractions, so this makes it especially external dependencies, so that we can break those dependencies and test our code separate from the thing that's external, mm-hmm. which is which is very critical to make it automated. Yep. Um, e is encapsulated. And in my definition of encapsulation sort of harkens back to what we were saying before about hide the how with the what. Yeah. So I want to show what I'm doing, but I want to hide all the implementation details as much as I can, because that gives me the freedom to change it later without breaking a lot of my clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, a is called assertive, and this is a code quality I don't see a lot of people talking about, but I think is really valuable. Assertive means that objects or entities are responsible for themselves, and uh, they're in charge of their own state. Uh, and what this does is it, it one thing is it clarifies the object model. Because we're putting behavior with the data that it works with, as opposed to spreading it all out. Sure, okay. And then the last is non-redundant. And I use the term redundancy rather than the XP term, which is duplication. Because duplication is the most obvious form of redundancy. It's easy to spot duplication, but redundancy can take subtler forms as well. That's right. You can have a couple of methods named totally different things that do the same thing, but do it in a different way. One developer has written one, and another developer didn't recognize that it was already there and has implemented it again. Yes. Yes. So if we're trying to do the same thing in more than one place, that would be redundant. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I find that if I just focus on, I don't have to actually focus on all these, just pick one or two. And if I focus on that to improve the quality of my code, uh, I find that the others also improve. And um and I find that my code is far more maintainable, easier to work with. Yeah. Nice. Well, and it's one of the ways to start talking about an existing piece of code, right? Like, it yes. also, also often when we're finally, okay, we're in this method now or we're in this function now, we're looking and going, what would you do different? How could we make this better? Hmm. Uh, it starts off with a criticism of this, this is bad. Who wrote this? Who, it, you know, what did, oh, wait, it was me. I see my own comment there. Okay. <laughs> but to walk down the clean code things and say, are these things well represented in this code just gives you sort of a, a, a less painful talking point around the code to, to say there's things we could do to make it better. Yes. Yes. I so agree. And having a ubiquitous language, uh, uh, terms that we all agree, because what happens is we throw around these terms, but a lot of times we have very different mental pictures of what those terms really mean. Mm, And we think we're communicating, but we're actually 
talking about for different things. Saying different things, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you have to have that glossary conversation. So, what do we started with it in this conversation? What does legacy mean to you? Right. Let's yeah, define that's our why terms. I love the question. Yes. Yeah. It's a good one because it's, it's you, but you have to keep having that until we really are on the same page. All right. Four practices to go. All right. Let's do them. So one of my very favorite practices, which is write the test first. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of uh, test first development or TDD. Mm-hmm. And this is um, straight Michael Feathers when it comes to legacy stuff. It's like start writing tests around this code. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I like to write tests before I even write any code. I, I sure. use the same techniques to write new code. And uh, I find it really helps me. It helps me because it's really f- looking from outside in, you yeah. know. So I, I understand what is what is it I'm doing, right? What is the interface that I want to create? What is it that I'm expecting back? And those are all good questions to ask before you actually dive into implementation. You know, TDD is something that isn't without its critics, too, right? I mean, I know oh, plenty yes. of developers that we've interviewed on the show over the years that that aren't fans uh, that don't do it, and. Uh, they're you know they it's not just that they it, they think they will do it someday they blatantly say no this is a waste of time yeah and i'm just really glad that like building like um contractors people who construct bridges and things like that they don't say the same thing i'm glad that they when they construct things they they build it and they kind of verify that it works and stuff like that mm-hmm. i i think that personally since because i i the cost of software is is five times greater to maintain after it was released so so it's the if you look at the statistics overall it, we spent about 20 percent on development and then 80 percent on the stuff that happens after the initial release maintenance fixing right. bugs extending in very small ways extending behaviors and that's because most of the code that we write is very hard to change which like like we're saying is legacy code yeah yeah sure and one way yeah. to avoid that is to have verifiability built into the code that we write i mean software is so opaque it's you can't like see it or touch it and so having tests give me a great deal of confidence in my code so that's why i'm a fan you know the other side of this a, a corollary to this exact idea is Going through figuring out the test is a way to know when you're actually done. Like we always, you said this right off the bat with, yes. with practice one. When will we know we've done something useful? Building yes. the test actually defines you're done when the test passes. Yes. And isn't that one of the areas that we really, that we spend a lot of time sort of thinking about, debating about? Uh, it adds stress to our lives and sure. you know, developers are, are kind of, we're kind of like they, people say that we gold plate and we don't really intend to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we don't necessarily know how our code is going to be used and we don't want it to break in production. Right. So mm-hmm. we try to think about, well, you know, what could go wrong, but better more, uh, I find for me better to think about, well, just make it do what it needs to right now. And then I'll have more time later to be able to extend it if I need to. Yeah. And you build a set of tests to make sure it's doing what it needs to. Exactly. That visual feedback of green bar says, oh, you're done. Then I can move on, which is nice. Actually, I have three definitions of done. I'll share them with you. Okay. Uh, Done just means that it it worked. It worked on my machine. (laughs) Right. Done done (laughs) means that it was integrated into the build. And a lot of teams go right to done done. But I think that there's another version of done, which is I call it done done done. (laughs) <laughs> and done, done, done means that it's not only integrated into the build, but it's refactored, it's cleaned up, it's made supportable. 
And this is, I think, an area that sometimes we neglect. Other forms of engineering don't. You know, when you build a product, you also think about how is that product going to live in the field? Uh, you know, how, how do we productize it? Hardening it, people who build, you know, build physical things think about those things. And we have to, when we're building virtual things as well, think about the maintainability of our software. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. All right. Specifying behaviors with tests. Now, this is a little bit beyond just naming the test what the behavior should be, right? Yes. Yes. In fact, so Misko Havery, um, who's a brilliant developer, he did the Clean Code Talks, which are Google Tech Talks. And he's also the author of Angular. Um, he says that he rarely meets a developer who, knows, who, who he thinks knows how to write a really good test. Hmm. We all think we know how to write good tests, but actually it turns out that writing a really good test is a skill because it has to be unique. And it also has to be something that brings us a step forward, move, moves us forward into the overall implementation. And it has to be, as much as possible, not implementation dependent. Yeah. So we're testing behaviors rather than testing implementation. And the reason that we want to do that is that, again, when it comes time to refactor our code, our tests aren't breaking as well. So one of the things that I find valuable about doing TDD is it gives me a suite of regression tests. Yeah. But I want those tests to be clean, just like I want my code to be clean, so that when I go to refactor, I'm not spending all my time refactoring the tests as well. Now, when you refactor, do you refactor the tests first, or do you just write the code the way that you, you know, change the code, maybe add a couple of methods, do some abstra extraction, and then change the tests? What do you do there? So so when I refactor code, which means, again, changing the structure without changing the behavior, if I have tests that only test behaviors, my tests don't have to change at all. That's right. But Now, that's kind of an ideal world. Well, okay, I, but, what I, if, okay yeah. but what if you extract a method from another method? I mean, you're, you've now got coverage of the first method, but not the second one that uh, the first one calls. So what, what we should do is run code coverage on that. And what we'll see is that we still do have code coverage on that extracted method because we are exercising its behavior through the public interface. Mm -hmm. So, and Michael Feathers actually says this in his book as well. He says, if you can exercise a private method's behavior through the public interface, you can consider it tested. Yeah, right. I suppose you're right. Unless, yeah. of course, you have some condition in which the test doesn't call into the, to the private method. That condition, though, has to be ex externally accessed, right? Right. We have to be able to access it externally. In other words, you Maybe. have to either have a, a you know, a s specify, I get it, I know what you're saying. You have to have yeah. tests that cover all of the different possible inputs and possible outputs. Yes. Yeah. So then the question becomes, in any situation, how do you, how do you figure out what the right tests are? Right, right. And one, the, the way that I found works really well for me is thinking of it in terms of specifying behaviors. So I, I think of my tests as, ex, as a way of expressing behaviors. And for any behavior that I can come up with, I can understand what tests I need to, to actually build out that behavior, you know? Mm -hmm. And I can also reach consensus with other developers. So when I teach TDD, this is one of my main goals, which is that we all agree for any behavior what the right number and kind of tests are. And when we reach that commonality, that common touch point between us, it is incredibly powerful. 
Yeah. I, I don't think that we could actually all come up with the one right way to write code because there isn't one. Right. There are many unique ways of writing code, and I think there are many of them, all, almost all of them are, are valid. The challenge is, is that your way of writing code and my right way of writing code equally valid, but when we try to interface that code together, that's where we run into some challenges. You talk about this so, idea in your book of, of the safety net. What do you mean by that? Yes. Well, that's the tests that support it, that are supporting us. Whereas if we make a mistake, since we have good test coverage, it would throw up a red bar and tell us that we made a mistake before we have to actually, you know, like start to bring out the debugger and figure it out. Right. right. Okay. Very I don't good. use the debugger very much anymore. <laughs> I used <laughs> to be a, I used to be an expert debugger. <laughs> yeah, we we noticed the trend uh, on the show that once dynamic languages started getting very very popular. You know, uh, test-driven development became necessary because you're not necessarily uh, generating problems that the compiler can pick up on. You know, yeah. so you look at your tests as your your error mechanism rather than the compiler. Which you know, yes. the, you know, the ultimate uh, expression is: Did we get the right result? That's the ultimate question. If you can answer that, you're in. You got it going on. You got it going on. Yep. Totally, All right, totally. last few minutes, my friends. Uh, practice <laughs> eight. Okay, implement the design last. So I'm into doing things backwards. I, I write the test first. I implement my design last. And really <laughs> what I mean by that is that you know we want to be able to get something to work, and then we want to spend some focus on cleaning it up, making it supportable. Right. So that's essentially what we're doing. Is, and we're talking about you know basically making the distinction between coding and cleaning. Yeah. And that, that both are necessary. I, I'm a, as a performance tuning guy, I'm like, do not tune your code as you're writing it. We're not going <laughs> to know what needs to go fast until it's running. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I fully agree. So this is very much the same thing. You don't know what's dirty and what's clean until it's built. And you can look at it and say, this needs cleaning. Yes. It's much more efficient to do it that way. Again, mm -hmm. going back to the writing metaphor, you know, it's much more efficient to edit my text than to try to edit it in my head, you yeah. know, when I don't have it on the page yet. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, let's do the last two. Yeah, last one. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. It's just one more. Uh, refactor legacy code. Yeah. And um, Nobody so, does that. <laughs> <laughs> more and more people are doing it. More and more managers, non-technical managers are recognizing the need for it, mm, which nice. is good. And um, essentially all the practices that we talked about in the book up until this point for writing new code can be applied to legacy code to clean that up as yeah, well. Sure. So that's really... Absolutely. And the reason that I don't start out with legacy code is I really want the reader to understand what good code looks like first. Mm, right. Before we can refactor it to something better, we got to know what that something better means. Yeah. Yeah, and that's part of this measuring, building tests, like all of these elements come down to we can actually make this project better. Yes. And part of that's got to be the confidence in it, that you know what it does, you know why it does it, you know when you'll break things before it's a disaster. Yes. Yep. Well, this is great. Um, tell us, uh, we, we can find your, your stuff here on your blog, but also there are some more resources, aren't there? Yes. Um, so there's my book, Beyond mm -hmm. Legacy Code, Nine Practices to Extend the Life and Value of Your Software. And you can get that. Uh, it's available at Amazon. It's available at my uh, from my publisher, The Pragmatic Bookshelf. Mm -hmm. Or you can just go to beyondlegacycode.com and it'll take you to my Amazon page. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Um, I'm tobeagile.com, T-O-B-E-A-G-I-L-E.com is my website and my blog. And there's, I write about this stuff a lot on the blog and all of that, of course, is free. So if you don't want to shell out the money for the book, just read my blog. Yeah. And you've got some YouTube videos out there as well. I do. Good things. I do. And um, I teach classes. I uh, do developer trainings and intensive boot camps and stuff like that that mm-hmm. cover these things. That's great. David, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, guys. It's really been a pleasure for me as well. All right. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a